It's time now for today's edition of Community Conversations. It's the interview program in which we dialogue with voices from the Omaha community. And here's your host for Community Conversations. Let's welcome Cammie Carlisle. Well, good afternoon, folks. Cammie Carlisle with you this fine Friday afternoon. Ryan O and I have switched positions. Ryan is going to handle the interview part of Community Conversations today. Ryan, how are you? Happy Friday. Good afternoon, Cammie, and welcome once again to another community conversation here on Radio Talking Book. And I want to wish everybody, as I turn down the monitor speaker here, holy crow, um, want to wish everybody a Merry Christmas and a Happy Holiday Season. This is Ryan O taking Cammie's place because she bribed me with peppermint bark and fudge <laughs> and I all did. kinds of good stuff. And so I'd take over her so she could sit back and just kick back and laugh at me as I'm on the air. And to bring the laughter, we have Shane Burrish, my good buddy of many, many, many years. Shane is currently employed with the Nebraska Commission for the Blind and Visually Impaired. He's a member of the National Federation of the Blind. He's an educator of blind kids. He's got all kinds of hats, and we'll get into that this half hour as Shane and I spread some Christmas cheer together. Shane, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ryan. Uh, we certainly do go way back. In fact, I was reflecting on the way in today how um, in another lifetime for both of us, uh, you had an on-air show in Lincoln at a community radio station that... KZUM. Exactly. I think we did something like this nearly 30 years ago, so it's... It's great. Thanks for having me. Wow, man. It's it's a pleasure. It's it's long overdue. I just celebrated my six years at Radio Talking Book a couple of months ago, and it just struck me that, man, we've we, Shane is long overdue to get here, so I'm glad you finally made it. Before we get into your past life, um, to, to kind of the experiences that brought you here and talk some blindness stuff, let's get to some really heavy stuff, Shane. We'll get this out of the way early. <laughs> Don't you think it's about time that Sarah got a cat for Christmas? After many years of them not having an animal, wouldn't it be better for you and for your little daughter and some homeless cat somewhere if the cat came to live with you? Ultimately, it probably would, but uh, it's not going to happen. Okay, well, I'm glad we got that settled. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so Santa Claus can't bring a kitten this year for... No. For the for the kids? Okay. Well, darn it. There goes that idea. <laughs> so, Shane, tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? I know you're a, na- a native Nebraskan, but talk about your history and kind of focus on what it was like growing up as a blind kid. Sure. Thank you, Ryan. Uh, well, so um, I did grow up in Nebraska. I grew up in a little town uh, northwest of Lincoln, Valparaiso. Actually, most people think of Indiana when they hear that, but... Uh, um, little town of 500 folks. I went to Raymond Central Public Schools, which at the time that I was growing up and yourself too, Ryan, you know, there was sort of a mixture of folks who were educated in residential (laughs) school settings and many of us who were uh, what is now called included in public schools. And so I did that. And I I think I had a, you know, really, really good and average, um, you know, childhood. I did all kinds of things like wrestled and was in choir and National Honor Society and uh, some of the um, other challenge competitions and, you know, things like that. So you just said included that uh, what we used to call mainstreamed, right? Correct. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. So when you grew up, were you viewed as blind by your teachers, by your peers, uh, by, by your family? Or how, how did that go out? Yeah, um, certainly. I did have a little bit of 
vision at that <clears throat> point uh, until my maybe junior year in high school or something like that. Just a little bit, maybe 20 over 800 vision. Uh, I did learn to read print first using magnification and things like that. But I've always been totally blind to my left eye. I'm blind because I was uh, born three months premature. And um, so I was definitely uh, using alternative techniques, meaning using your other senses to do things. Um, I operated uh, most of the time uh, in most instances as a blind person. So I was definitely identifiable as a blind person. I, you know, have to admit I tried to pass, especially being in a little community. Uh, I didn't use a cane until I was probably in about the ninth grade. I used to, you know, ride my uh, 10 speed bicycle around town and everybody knew me and looked out for me. Um, it's kind of crazy when I look back on some of those kinds of things, but no, I was, I wouldn't have never never been able to pass for um, somebody cited or anything like wow. that. Wow. Wow. Did your parents encourage you to, to, to do that kind of stuff, to not carry the cane and, and ride the bike and stuff like that? Or were they, what did, how did they view it? Cause that's kind of a different story for a lot of blind kids growing up. Some of them get support from their folks and others uh, not so much. And then, and for a lot of them, they don't know. So I, I don't want to make it seem as if I'm vilifying parents. Right. A lot of them don't have a roadmap. Um, it's just, it, kind of varies from case to case. What was your circumstance like? Yeah, I did not have um, a designated teacher of the visually impaired. I had someone come out from the what is now called the Nebraska Commission for the Blind and Visually Impaired and work with me on a few things. But my parents are both, um, you know, very, uh, you know, um, come from the blue collar, uh, very practical. And so I, I feel very fortunate that um, they, they, what they didn't know, they just kind of went on instinct. And so I can remember uh, my dad used to have a cement business as an example. And so as a teenager, I was out, you know, breaking sidewalk up with a sledgehammer yeah. or doing those sorts of things. And and it really has, um, as I've now grown up and uh, educated blind children and things of that nature, I, I can see where um, them just expecting me to do the same chores that my brothers did or do the same kind of activities, you know, go play football and baseball in the park, um, those kind of things. All those things played into my uh, mobility, be able to get around and, you know, those sorts of things. So I feel very fortunate that um, I also don't want to vilify anybody. But, you know, in some cases, I think I benefited from not having um, – them have the influence of experts who had a lower expectation. Absolutely. So, so I, you know, I'm not trying to put anything on anybody else here either because <laughs> I've, I've known many wonderful people in the profession too, but, but yeah, my parents didn't know of those low expectations. So they just instinctively had yeah. high ones. Yeah. And, and this is where, again, our history comes into play because I spent a lot of time at your place, um, you know, when we were in high school and college and whatnot. And I was struck at how your parents just approached you like your blindness was no big deal. Your your low vision was just part of who you were, and you were expected to carry your own weight um, as a kid. It was really cool. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. So where did you go to college? Tell us about your college experience. Well, I went to um, Peru State College, which is a part of that state system, not the university system, but there's Wayne State and Shattern State. Um, and my now wife, Amy, who is also blind, went there as well. Um, and so we were, I think, the first two blind people in the college's history. There have been some since, uh, but we did a lot of um, trailblazing there, uh, bringing, you know, disability services that were just, again, coming into fruition for all of us around around the country, you know, the idea that there'd be disability offices and stuff, those things were all pretty new. Um, so we kind of, you know, 
again, kind of fell into a fortunate situation where um, we were able to, rather than being dictated to by a structure, we were able to kind of carve out the structure, say, hey, uh, <laughs> you know, the computer could talk if you bought this program called JAWS. Okay, well, we have a little budget for that. We can do that. So, so yeah, um, it was a wonderful um, experience. Peru's a little town. The college is pretty much most of the economic and other engine that it's down there in the Southeast corner yeah. of Nebraska. And so, um, uh, wonderful people there who, who embraced us and, and, um, I, I can't, you know, say enough about the ex- education and again, experiences that I got to do there wrote for the campus paper was on the choir. I spent a lot of time in the student government there. So yeah, blindness was never a factor for them either. They just, you know, it let like included us too. Well, what was that guy's name? He was a, he was one of your SSD people, your, your, your stir, service for students with disability people. Um, he was a nice guy. He, he came and spoke at a round two at seminar one year. What was, who am I thinking of? Oh boy, you're dusting off some, uh, Greg Mitchell, I believe Greg his Mitchell, name was. That's yeah, who it was. Yeah. He had yeah. a military background and then went into he was a great guy. Yeah, he was. Great, he was. great guy. So you graduated in 97, I remember, because I was there. And and then what did you do? Well, um, I have um, a background in education, uh, secondary education. So um, I have been a special ed and math teacher in the past. Um, it's always kind of a challenge to convince people that you can do classroom management and stuff when you, you can't see just because they – kind of envisioned themselves being able to do it without vision. And of course it just doesn't work that way because we have a lifetime experience. So, so I did struggle a little bit to um, get a full-time placement there, but I did a lot of substitute teaching and things like that. And then probably six months after I graduated from high school, um, a position as a uh, teacher of blindness skills for the commission for the blind popped up in Lincoln. So I, I um, jumped at that and I have been there in February uh, it'll be 26 years. Bef- so. Before we get to the commission, mm-hmm. you you were a student at Raymond Central. Tell us about your time teaching at Raymond Central. Yeah, so it's really interesting. Uh, normally, you're not able to go back and student teach where you went to school because you're only three or four years removed from, you know, uh, knowing a lot of the students. And of course, my brothers attended school there. They were younger than me. Uh, but in my case, there was another, uh, and as far as I know, the only other blind um, high school teacher in the state. His name was Daryl Walla. Um, Some of the audience might know him. He was a special ed teacher who happened to be working at Raymond Central. And so Peru State made an exception so that I could go um, tutelage under him and learn some of the techniques that he did for classroom management and stuff. So so yeah, I did uh, my work back there. It worked out pretty well. Um, You know, I knew almost all the faculty and things of that nature. And, uh, yeah, I, I very much enjoyed and still do. I do teaching in a different form, which we'll get to, but, um, I, I enjoyed teaching math and special education. And as I recall, you came and sat in the back of the math classroom one time. (laughs) So that is when I, I mean, I was sold, man. You were, you were owning that class. It it was amazing. Uh, There was a girl named Amber who was a little bit precocious, but she was, you know, there's going to be one in every class, but, uh, man, you were just teaching math up there like it was like it was the, the most natural thing in the world. It was so cool. So um, I appreciate that. Thank you. Well, yeah. Okay, so we're up to the commission now, which of course plays a huge role in your life. Uh, for how long now? How long have you been there? I've been there twenty. Well, it'll be twenty six years in February. I've done several different hats there. Most of that time, 
I'm ballparking here, but maybe in 16, 17 years, I was what's called an orientation counselor. So that means you go out and work with people of all ages. I've had infants all the way up to people 100 years old, um, but help them adjust to either having always had, you know, know, like losing their vision or having never had vision. Um, So I would do, you know, teaching the cane, braille, how to cook as a blind person, how to maintain a home, do their computer skills, all that kind of stuff. And then in um, 2015, um, we created a new position uh, to uh, manage a lot of the what is called transition uh, services. So transition is a special set of um, skills or or curriculum that you know help people who are leaving the high school system on into their adult years. So, you know, you you two Ryan participated in a lot of the programs. Oh, over the years and things. So it was, it was fun to be able to, you know, when you have a lot of passion about what you did um, as a kid or what you'd like to see the next generation do, I, I felt very fortunate for seven years to be able to, um, you know, bring my thoughts and how I, how I wanted to shape those kind of programs yeah. and that sort of thing. You know, it reminds me of that line from the green mile where Tom Hanks or his character says, catch them when they're young. And I can't stress how important it is uh, for kids, for young people to to learn the positive skills of blindness at a young age, you know, it was for us when mm-hmm. we were sitting around at PI and Skip and those programs for elementary school age and junior high, now middle school age and, and then high school age, where not only would we learn from from role models, but we learn from each other about all the things you could do as blind people, and it's it's just it's so important. Yeah, it is. And we have we have such tremendous staff, you know, at the uh, Nebraska Commission for the Blind and Visually Impaired, uh, many of whom are sighted. But I know and I'm sure I don't want to put words in your mouth, Ryan, but um, I I think it was those blind adults that were working at those programs that we used as role models, uh, how they live their lives. And so um, I've just, you know, there's a lot of pressure about that. But I also feel very fortunate that I've been able to now be that same role model or I strive every day to do that uh, to the next couple of generations. So, And it was, it, it was, it was people like Robert and I'm going to name drop here, Robert Newman and mm-hmm. uh, John, uh, Glenn Irving mm-hmm. and Nancy Kaufman, Joe Bosshart, right. Larry Mackey. Uh, I'm trying to think if I'm missing anybody, you know, it was all those people uh, that showed us, you know, that you could be independent as blind people, but it was also people like Kelly Wood uh, Deanna Jesse and Connie Daly and Nancy Fleurel, Dan Hill, people like that that were sighted, but they were the first sighted people I met outside of my parents where blindness was not a big deal, where it was you were expected to pull your own weight even though you were blind. So it was it was a whole group of people. It was it was just so impactful. Yeah. Yeah, we we like to refer to those folks as blind at heart. There know. I, I forgot about that expression, <laughs> yeah. blind at heart. Yeah. 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 Blind at heart. What a, what a great saying. Mm-hmm. So tell me some of your fond memories from your transition years or the years you worked as a transition director at the commission. Tell me some stories. Oh, gosh. There's so many. Um, you know, you can we, talk about the robots if you want. I remember that one. Yeah. Yeah. That was um, – uh, cause we haven't even gotten to my current gig, but I know we will. But, um, yeah. So that last summer that I was transition person, we, we did, we brought in, um, some folks from a place called cyber.org and we did some little vehicle robots. Um, so the students were literally in one week, assembled them, learned how to do, uh, some, 
basic programming on the computer and got them doing things like avoiding obstacles and moving across the room. And it was very, it was very incredible. Um, some of whom, uh, the attendees have gone on to do some of their more advanced programming. Uh, the last couple of summers they've gone to, uh, other States and joined workshop, you know, and some of them are joining the uh, programming field and stuff based off that experience. Uh, another time we gave everybody, um, iPads cause you know, technology is so impactful. Oh, and, yeah. and actually over a three or four day, we created a workshop where we did over three or four days, like getting them acclimated. Cause oftentimes we hand people technology and then we don't really show them how to use it. So then it just becomes a doorstop, but we really worked hard at that. But, but, um, you know, I was just old enough that, uh, or my wife too, Amy, we we missed uh, a program we do called Wages, which is work and gain experience in the oh. summer. Uh, it started about a year or two after we had graduated high school, but I got to- I want to say 1994. That's correct. That's correct. And I got to coordinate that for a number of summers. And so there's just so many stories of, you know- um, you know, knowing our our generation and how it's hard to do the basic teenage jobs um, to, you know, I would arrange, you know, employment situations for folks in the community at this program. And like I had one student who worked at a state lake and he was pouring cement and painting picnic tables and all these kind of things that our generation would have never dreamed um, that we could do. So, yeah, I got a I got a front row seat um, at seeing some of those very. Very crucial things, which, you know, was really, I felt really fortunate. I'll tell you what, I don't have very many regrets at all. Yeah, not nearly as many as you would think. Uh, but, you know, I've made my peace with a lot. But if there's one, I don't even know if it's a regret or what, but it's just the fact that I didn't get to experience wages. Man, what a game changer that would have been. Um, what a revolutionary idea that is uh, for for blind kids because, um, again, Growing up, even though my parents were instrumental in my positive views about blindness, there was really not a push for me to go get a summer job. Right, um, right. There was that sense that, hey, man, you're you're home for the summer. You you can lay around, you know, come to baseball games or whatever. But a lot of kids go out there and get jobs, even mowing lawns or whatever. And I wish I'd, I'd had something like that. Uh, and wages does that for kids. Agreed. So. And we didn't even touch – we touched on the employment part, but you stay at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, so you learn your first busing experiences, your yep. first cafeteria experiences. So it's really uh, helping you not only transition maybe to the work world someday, but also to that college, you know, to kind of demystify a lot of those fears that you might Absolutely. have going off to college Man. too. So. What, what, what an experience. So that you're not doing transition anymore. What are you doing now? Uh, for the past two years, I've also uh, feel, you know – kind of pulling a lot of these different experiences together. I'm now the Braille instructor at the Nebraska Center for the Blind. So I got that education piece and I got still that same passion for helping folks. Um, I still do get to work with youth because quite often people come to the center like you and I did when we first you know, graduated from high school. But we also have, you know, these days many seniors who are still wanting to be more active than prior generations. So um, in any given day, I might have somebody in their 60s all the way down to, you know, somebody like right now we have like four students who are only like 21, 22 years old. So um, it's it's really, really great uh, what, you know, I love math and everything like that. But, you know, the ability to help someone either read for the first time or regain their literacy, like true literacy, um, I don't know, uh, knowledge is power. So it, it's just um, – 
it's I don't even I don't even know how to put it into words how fortunate I feel to be able to um, help people to be a part of society through the ability to read and write. Yep. Your wife is listening, by the way. We better give her a shout out. And she informs us that the first wages was in 1993. So thank you, Amy, for the correction. I'm glad your memory is better than mine. So, Shane, Braille has gotten a bad rep um, from you mentioned earlier, and I wanted to circle back to this from the education establishment. Where does that come from and what does it look like now? I remember and we'll get to the NFB as well in the time we have left. But uh, we have fought battles with um, with educators about teaching blind children Braille. And, of course, you probably get a lot of adults who have been blind for a long time coming into the center and they struggle with Braille because they were never taught. Why Why does that happen? Can you talk a little about that and kind of the impetus of that struggle and, and where what it looks like today? Yeah, I have a few theories on that. Uh, I don't know, you know, how accurate they are, but they're, you know, all well, you're a professional. Yeah, you're, right. you're a professional yeah. Braille instructor. So, so, you would so I think part of it comes from the fact that we now have all kinds of other technologies, ways, um, you know, to – you know, our phones have voiceover, our computers have things like NVDA or JAWS, you know, screen readers, things like that. So there's a, you know, kind of a audio books are very prevalent, both for the blind and sighted. So there's one, one thing that happens is, is it's sort of like, Oh, that, that was a really cool technology for a time, but this is outdated. And yet we know that um, many of those things, while they are wonderful and I, you know, use them on a daily, if not hourly basis, um, those are oftentimes passive activities. So the idea of getting your fingers moving and um, the way it interacts with the brain, Braille is is an active activity. And the comprehension and the ability to be able to refer back to something. um, You know, I always tell students in the center, you know, because not everybody even comes in there that they were much of a reader when they were sighted, you know, or something like that. So the goal isn't really to make everybody like be able to give up and recite speeches or read entire novels. It's whatever their goals are and what kind of reader they wanted to be. Um, but so, you know, for many people though, we know they're the most successful if they can read Braille to a certain extent, whether it's, you know, especially in employment, like, um, but, um, so like 90% of you know people who are employed read Braille in some way, whether it's labeling their things or whatever. But back to that teacher piece, the other thing is um, I also have been an endorsed teacher of the visually impaired in the past. And when I went through the classes um, with – I was the only blind person. There was a bunch of sighted folks. Um, Braille for them was really challenging <laughs> to learn. Um, and to feel successful about it. And so one of the trappings, as we all know, of humanity is that we project our situation onto others, you know. So I would see folks in this teaching program in tears trying to use Perkins Braille writers or trying to memorize the code. And so I think there becomes a bias about how difficult Braille was for them. So if you think about it this way, like, you know, it's sort of like, oh, I'm adult teacher and I couldn't do it, so I'm not going to put a second grader through that. I'm not going to put a third grader exactly. That. And yet, what happens is if you do, you know, they're they're young, so they just gravitate toward it right away. And bada boom, bada bing, you know, they're they're doing the slate and stylus and all that kind of stuff. So that that's part of the dynamic I think that happens there. I gave the NFB a mention a few minutes ago, and we would be remiss if we didn't talk about um, that organization since. That has a lot to do with both what you and I think about blindness. So talk about your history with the Federation, how you came to know them, and and where you're at now with them. 
Yeah, I um, attended my first um, NFB national convention in 1992 as just out of uh, out of high school, um, and then um, I joined the state affiliate here shortly thereafter. I think I've been to every state convention since 1993, if I remember right. Uh, I went there as a scholarship finalist back then. I've attended most national conventions since then. Uh, maybe I've missed a handful here or there when I was in graduate school or things of that nature. But, um, but yes, uh, I've held you know many offices. Um, I currently am not in an office actually at the moment, but I was on the state board for I think something like twenty five years or something like that. So. Um, kind of letting other folks step up and, you know, being in more of the advisory <clears throat> role at this point. But no, the the idea of um, the the fact that we need to unite to, you know, uh, be able to change things for the better. And then also, you know, being inspired again by other blind people to live the kind of lives we want. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think we all have, you and I both or others, you know, that are listening, have our own resources within ourselves. Um, but the NFB has definitely played a crucial role in helping me feel confident to tap those resources and to show me the way sometimes on how I could do that. Like yeah. kind of give me a platform or whatever. So I'm internally yeah. grateful. Um, I hope we have time at some point to mention, I do have, um, we got about five minutes. Okay. So, so, a- so go for it. Whatever so my you wife, want. Amy and I have two children, um, two, we have a, Son Noah, who's a senior in high school, and a daughter, uh, Sarah, who's in fourth grade. She's actually with me today, but um, she's cute as a button. She's <laughs> had ten cookies, Amy. I know you're listening, so not that many. Yeah, but um, but there again, uh, it was seeing other blind adults who had children that um, showed me the the pathway that I indeed, um, you know, could be a parent. And uh, I'm not going to lie, I was pretty nervous about it at first and those sorts of things. But um, the the kind of reward that um, my, ch- you know, having children uh, pays me, you know, every day um, and the joy that they bring to my life is um, something that uh, I couldn't, I don't know how I would get another way. And so I just, yeah. you know, feel really blessed both for the NFB kind of and other blind people before me showing me, as you said, like at those programs and things. And then also, um, you know, just for having them and that sort of thing. What's the most challenging thing as a, as a blind parent and what's the most rewarding thing as a blind parent in your opinion? Well, I think um, one of the challenging things is, um, and this is improving somewhat with technology, but getting access to information when you're a blind parent, whether that's medicines you need to, distribute or their homework or things like that. And I'll see sometimes electronics have played a role in that. Um, but, uh, people would often think it's discipline, like, Oh, can't your kids pull off things on you or whatever. And, and usually that comes through relationship. So, uh, I, I feel fortunate that Amy and I, uh, have two wonderful, uh, you know, kids who haven't given us, you know, much issue in the way of the behavior piece of things. But I also think that's because of the rapport that we've had since they were very little. Um, did you put bells on their shoes when they were kids, when they were small, so you knew where they were? We did. Yeah, we did. And that works? It does work. Yep. Because I'm a non-parent. And one of the things I've always been scared of, just, you know, in my mind, creating issue, you know, in, you know scenarios is, oh, my gosh, how do you know where the kids are? 
So the the bells on the shoes is one method I know that that a lot of parents use. Mm-hmm. And as and I, this is where I was referring to too is like as they get more verbal and they get to be that two, three, four years old, you're at the park. We always had rules like, hey, when I call for you, because there's other children and they all kind of sound the same yep. at a certain age. Uh, it's like if you you know you either come over and check in once in a while, or you yell back, or otherwise it may take me a little while. But once I do find you, we're going home. Yep. You know, and so those kind yep. of things work pretty well. So well, we're almost down to the wire, Shane, because time flies when you're oh, having it's fun. It's, uh, it's been a blast having you. If people want to uh, connect with the Commission for the Blind, how can they do that? Um, they certainly um, can go on the web, and uh, I believe the website is ncbvi.ne.gov. That's the initials for Nebraska Commission for the Blind and Visually Impaired. So ncbvi.ne.gov. Okay. Um, I um, know that we have a desk number, too, which is 402-471-2891. Nice. Yep. Nice. Still got that branded in my brain. Yep. Yeah. We used to... Used to call it all the time. In fact, we'd call it collect, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> From jail. Back, back in the day. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't going to bring that up. I waited till the end, right? Um, if people want to find out about the NFB of Nebraska, how can they do that? Um, that too, I, I was trying to think what the URL is off the top of my head. But um, we go by National Federation of the Blind of Nebraska, so NFBN. Um, it might be just NFBN.org. Yeah. Okay. I think it is. But, okay. Uh, but anyway, or they can just uh, Google NFB of Nebraska and they can find you that way. So, correct. Shane, our time is up. It has been an absolute blast talking with you. Thanks so much for being here today. Yeah. Well, thanks for having having me in, and I uh, appreciate the time. Um, and uh, hope all the listeners have a very Merry Christmas, wonderful holiday season, yep. and so on and so forth. Merry Christmas to you and your family. Amy, thank you for listening today. And Sarah, thanks for your cameo. And this is Ryan O with Community Conversations, throwing it back to Cammy in the control room. Everyone have a Merry Christmas and a great weekend. You've been listening to Community Conversations on Radio Talking Book. It's the interview program that brings you voices from the Omaha community. The Radio Talking Book Network is brought to you with the cooperation of KIOS-FM in Omaha and statewide through the facilities of NET Radio and Television. We've been proudly serving our blind and visually impaired listeners for 46 years. Thank you for being a loyal Radio Talking Book listener and supporter.